Today, I want to talk to all of you about journeys. We're going to talk about a couple of different kinds of journeys, and we're going to talk about decisions involved in making a journey. But before we do that, I would like to share a couple of travel tips, two travel tips with you. The first one is to illustrate, I hope, and I think it will, the power of decisions and the role they play when we are taking a journey. It's a true story. It happened to me just a few weeks ago. So here we go. But before I get to that, let me also give a bit more backdrop. It's estimated, by the way, because I know you want to know this, that the average adult makes 35,000 decisions per day. Now, I know that some of you are above average, so perhaps 40, 50, I don't know, 100,000. But the average adult, it says, makes more than 35,000 decisions per day. I'm going to share about three decisions that I made a few weeks ago. I like to ride mountain bikes. I'm certainly not the most uh, adventuresome uh, soul when it comes to that, but I enjoy it. It's one of the ways I like to get exercise. So I was riding my mountain bike on a hot day in August. I had gone for about 45 minutes to a neighboring park, a big massive park called Breckenridge Park, and I was feeling, frankly, pretty good about myself. I had wondered what kind of condition I'd been. I'd not been able to ride that much uh, this summer, Uh, but I was feeling pretty good. In fact, I had conquered what I call the field of futility. Uh, It's a field, as the name suggests, maybe about two football fields long. It doesn't really look that imposing, but for some reason it's kind of soft and mushy and the grass is thick and it takes a lot out of you. But I had gone through the field of futility and actually had done pretty well. And so as I came out of the field, I thought, you know, I'm in better shape than I thought I was. Uh, You know, and and, and I also thought, you know, and that was the hardest part of of my journey, and now I get to go downhill. Because, as we all know, when you say it's all downhill from here, that's a good thing, right? So I was looking forward to it. I was going to get some nice breeze as I went down this hill, and I'd been down it many times. It wasn't new to me, but as I started down the hill, I decided to do something kind of the spur of the moment. Decision one. I decided to turn left instead of right. I always went right for reasons I'll skip today, but I went left. And as I started going down, I realized, wow, I'm picking a lot more speed than I thought. But that said, I I managed to kind of keep it under control. It was under control. And so I made it through a really sharp kind of a hairpin left turn. But as I was coming out of that turn and looking ahead, I saw an elderly couple walking my way on the path that I was riding on. And I thought to myself, now I know that there's enough room. It's a pretty wide path. There's enough room. I could go beside them, and everyone has enough room. But I was a little concerned that maybe I would alarm them. So I thought, you know what, I'll just veer off the path. I'd been in this area before. I knew it fairly well. I thought, well, there's, there's some grassy, dirty, a dirt area over here. I'll just go veer off to the right. So that was decision number two. And as I did that, then I had one last decision to make, and that was, should I go to the left of the tree or should I go to the right of the tree? Because there was a tree as I was approaching, and I knew about this tree. I'd seen it, and there were several in a row by this pond. I thought, you know what, I'll go. I kind of started to go to the right because I knew it a little better. I thought, no, I'll just go to the left. So all these decisions, these three decisions, happened in quick order. But as I approached and drew even with the tree, 
To my great dismay, I realized, because it was covered in shade, it was frankly right beside the tree, it was kind of in a dark area, and I couldn't see it until I was right on top of it. There were about, I don't know, six or seven exposed roots, which if you've ever ridden a mountain bike, roots are the enemy of mountain bikers, but they were maybe two or three inches, but then there was one or two that were probably six to eight inches high coming out of the ground, and I had a lot of speed. I'm coming toward it, and for one second I thought, I'm going to make it, and then I realized I wasn't going to make it. And strangely enough, time slows down, I can still see the elderly couple walking my way, looking at me, and I'm thinking, this is not going to end well. And I went over the handlebars, came crashing down hard on the hard-packed dirt, and I knew I was hurt, but my ego was probably hurt more, and I jumped up quickly to let the elderly people know, look, hey, I'm in good shape, I'm okay. But I realized quickly I'd lost about four inches of skin from my elbow, and I also realized that I had badly bruised my ankle and my lower shin on my leg. But mainly, I think I had bruised my ego. So you probably all can think of a story in your life where you've done something similar. All the decisions seem quite innocuous, but the outcome was not very pleasant. And so I want you to, to set that aside and think about decisions, but we will move that to a spiritual realm, but I hope that perhaps helps you think about how powerful they can be in our lives. So that was tip one. So tip number two, I'd like for us to use a daily routine that we all experience, I think at least the vast majority of us do. I'd like for us to use, start using it, if we don't already, use it in our spiritual journeys each day. But before I get to that tip, We know that the Feast of Trumpets is right around the corner. It is a day, it is a great day. It is a day that pictures Christ's return. It is a sound of a trumpet, as we know, and we know that the trumpets, sound of the trumpet blast can mean it is time for celebration, to shout for joy, or it can be a time of war. So as you think about trumpets, and you think about your daily routines, and as you think about journeys, Think about what happens almost every morning for all of us. In fact, it may have happened this morning. You're awakened by, well, hopefully not a trumpet blast, but you're awakened by your alarm. Maybe it's on a clock, maybe it's on your cell phone, but every single morning, probably, unless you just happen to wake up by yourself, that alarm goes up and it wakes you up. So I'd like to encourage you to think about that when that alarm goes off. Consider it a mini trumpet blast and a a reminder that your day, your spiritual journey, is beginning anew. And you have a chance to celebrate your relationship with God, to shout for joy in a sense, or also to be reminded that it's time to get ready for the battles that you'll face that day. So those are a couple of travel tips. Let me now move to journey number one. This journey, you can call it the journey two. Now, as we look, I look around, I don't want to psych myself out, and there's folks upstairs, hello folks upstairs. Uh, this message, is, or this part of the message, is primarily to those who are not yet baptized. Now, you might be a teenager, or a young adult, or it could be someone who's in their 40s, 50s, or beyond. But someone who's not baptized. But as we look at it, clearly there are lessons here that apply to all of us. So please don't check out on me if you've been baptized for 40, 50 years. So let's look at that, and we're going to do that by looking at the story of Gideon. Gideon is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. 
I love the story. I'm not quite sure why, but it's just a unique story and his relationship with God. So if you would, turn to the book of Judges, chapter 6. And we're going to begin with what I would characterize as God's calling of Gideon. So Judges, chapter 6, verse 11, where we read, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, I guess, uh, which belonged to Joash the Abizite, or something like that, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress. He was there because he was trying to hide his activities from the Midianites. And here we have an interesting statement being made. The angel of the Lord said to Gideon, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Kind of an interesting statement since he was hiding at the time. But that's the essence of the beginning, if you will, the call that God made to Gideon. So God will call. We know that God calls. And so for all of us, if we think about our lives, you can think about whenever that call you felt came to you. Here's when it came to Gideon. Now, I want to make the point that as we go through Gideon's story, that what happens here, I think, actually are quite, uh, it's quite common. It's really a pattern that probably all of us experienced to some degree, and it may be different ways, and it is something that all of you who are thinking about being baptized uh, will probably face too. So let's start with that uh, pattern. So we have the calling, and then the next thing we see, or I want to focus on, is verse 13. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about? Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianite. So we have a calling, and immediately Gideon responds with some questions. You could say they were complaints. I don't know if these were actually complaints, how he felt exactly, but for sure they were questions. So let me ask those of you who are perhaps considering baptism or wondering what you're going to do in the future about the church, What questions do you have? Surely you have them. We all have them, especially at that time in our life, and we have them throughout our lives. But what questions do you have? And then after that question, I'll also say this. When we look at Gideon's example, he left two really powerful examples of how to approach a calling from God. And let me share those right now. And you, we're not going to read every single verse in the story, of course. But if you like, go back and see if you can kind of see how this unfolds. Two important things which I encourage all of you to do. Number one, we've already seen it, he shares what he is thinking with God. Sometimes we just think things and that's as far as it ever goes. But please share what you're thinking with God, number one. So he does that. But Gideon also does something equally important. He gives God a chance to answer his question. And we need to do the same thing, whether we're just starting out or we've been on this road for 30, 40, 50 years. Are we giving God a chance? Please remember those two important lessons. So let's drop down to verse 14 as the story continues. This is an interesting part of the story as well. The Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in this might of yours, again, here he is hiding, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So here we have someone whose questions involved, what is going on here? 
We are supposed to be getting miracles, and we are prisoners in our own country. Where are you? So God, I would say, answers him in a very unusual, unexpected way. Well, don't worry about that, Gideon. I've got a plan. And by the way, you're going to help solve the problem. I think perhaps sometimes God does that with us, albeit we're probably not in a wine press threshing wheat when the call first comes. So God is calling him, and Gideon is dealing and responding with this. And so let's go to the next stage of the calling, the excuse stage. And Gideon had an excuse. So first of all, he had a complaint or a question. Now he has an excuse. He said, but wait a minute, verse 15. Oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So there was his excuse. Now, what, oh, what? I just had a question and a complaint. I didn't want to get involved here. But, he said, but now, okay, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Go in the direction I didn't want to go. Well, what about you? What about me? Even if I have been called for some years, which I have, what are our excuses? Mr. Kobernot talked about the persecution and the trials to come, and that can be daunting to consider. We probably, you know, we've heard about it for years, but, but when it gets to it, it might make us a little bit nervous. So what excuses do you have? Are you too busy with school? Are you too, having too much fun partying, playing video games, just goofing around, don't like the people at church, what are your excuses? We probably have them all, and don't, you know, I don't want to be uh, dis- dismissive. Uh, we all go through these things. Uh, but are those your excuses for not getting involved if you're not involved? Well, God knows we have these excuses. And God can deal with them, and God can help us work through them. I'm not trying to say that you're a horrible person if you have them. We all go through this process. So we have these excuses, and God comes back to Gideon, Gideon in verse 16. Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. So he keeps adding, and God will keep working with us as we work through this relationship. But Gideon, despite all this, he's still not done. And I don't think that for most of us we are done that easily, are easily convinced. So I would say the next stage is this. Gideon now goes through a, a process where he asks for what I would call reassurance. The first question is, the thing that he has on his mind is, in verse 17, he says, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. I think it's fair to say that we all, that we read of God, we hear about God, we sometimes are like Job. We hear of God by the hearing of the ear, but sometimes our eye doesn't quite succeed in seeing him for who he is. And so here he's asking, well, show me this is really you. I mean, you, you say that you're God, show me that it's you. And we all, of course, if you're, especially if you're being called or just getting started, it's, it's perfectly fine to want to be reassured. We all need that reassurance. And so the, the story goes on, and again, we see that Gideon gives God, he asks, then he gives him a chance, or he does his part, I should say. Verse 19, Gideon goes, he prepares a young goat, he gives an offering. I won't read every word, I'll just paraphrase it. Uh, basically, the offering is consumed by fire. That is God's way of showing that, yes, indeed, it is God and his eye, that, uh, in other words, that is speaking to you. So that was somewhat reassuring, but he still wasn't completely reassured. And as you probably recall, when you think of Gideon, maybe you think of this, the story of the fleece, the miracle of the fleece. There's two elements to it. Uh, and so these are 
two more examples of where Gideon is seeking reassurance. He's building his faith. He's growing in his relationship with God. And we all do this, whether we're starting out or whether we've been on the road for 40, 50 years. And so we, again, I will simply paraphrase it. You know the story. At one point, he wants, he wants the fleece to be wet and the ground around it to be dry. And at another point, he reverses it. Uh, and so that's what, he, that's what he wants to see. That's what gives him the reassurance that he needs that God will do, and in this case, specifically, that he's going to deliver the Midianites into his hand. And God delivers and God will deliver for us. I don't think that we are probably going to ask for the miracle of the fleece. We'll probably ask for something else, something that fits the culture and the time, I'm sure. But as we look at Gideon's life, and we go on to the rest of the story, and and I'll just uh, summarize it by saying, Gideon did become a mighty man of valor. He was successful. And there's a great verse in verse 22, I think it's chapter 7. I realize I didn't write this down. Uh, But we have this statement made. When the men of Israel came up to Gideon and they said, Rule over us. Here's this mighty man of valor. You've been victorious in defeating the Midianites. Hey, we want you to rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson, it says. But Gideon, in verse 23, says, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And that, of course, is a lesson that we have to learn in our lives, and we have to have the faith that he indeed is there, and he is ruling over us. So as we wrap up this particular journey in this part of the message, I'll summarize by saying your calling, your questions, your excuses, your need for reassurance these are all common things. These are part of a relationship, building a relationship with God. And so God is the one who calls. I don't know how that works exactly, but I will at least leave a question because, you know, at one point in life, I was in that boat. I was around age 21, and I heard a message given from the pulpit from the church, or my church of God at the time, where a gentleman was talking about an age of accountability, and he caught my ear. So who knows? Perhaps this one may catch your ear. And I'll just leave you with this question. Is it your turn? So now let's move on to the second journey. This journey, if you want a title, I guess I should explain it. This is called the journey back from multiple sins. Not exactly... uh, a uh, super catchy title, but it's, it's a way of explaining what I'm going to talk about. And let me just, first of all, say is my prayer that no one in this room ever has to take this journey because it's a very hard journey. With that said, let me, in fact, start with three points. Usually you, you close out with some points, but I'm going to start with three points. Number one, and you'll understand, come to know what I'm talking about in a moment, but number one, do all you can to avoid this journey because it is a very hard journey. Number two, I'm not sure if this is a point or a statement, some of God's people may take it anyway. and Some, might be, some of you might be taking it right now. Number three, as hard as it is, with God's help, you can make it through and you can return to God. So we're going to 
explore this topic further by going to look at the life of King David. Mr. Cobernot mentioned King David. I was getting a little worried there for a second. I was wondering where he was going to go. Uh, and it's interesting what he said. He, he, and I think, and I don't know the exact timing of, of when things were written, so forgive me. I'll have to go back and do some study. But the story begins with King David. And if you want to, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 13, and verse 22. This is, of course, referring to David's calling. Uh, and let's read what it says there. And when he had removed him, God had removed King Saul, that is, God raised up for them David as king, to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. So King Saul was replaced. He lost his job because he did not obey God. But here we read that David, at this point in his life, was willing to do all of God's will. Unfortunately, we know that there was a point in David's life where that was not the case. And this story begins to unfold in earnest, anyway. I'm sure it started a little bit before this. In the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11, if you want to turn there. Mr. Kylos, maybe a year or two ago, talked about this subject and used this specific verse. But 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, if that's how you say it. But David remained at Jerusalem. So a question probably springs quickly to mind. Why didn't David go out with his army? He was the king. That's what kings did. We just read it. Now, of course, we don't know exactly the answer to that question, but we can consider a few possibilities, which are probably reasonable. Was he resting on his laurels? If you go back to chapter 10, we read of a great victory that David, when he was out in the field with his army, had won over the Syrians, a complete rout. So sometimes when we have great victories, we tend to let down. We want to enjoy the moment. Was that where David had gone in his mind, or had he just also gone perhaps just into a mode where he felt like he had done it for himself? I don't know. Maybe he was just tired of the hard life of a soldier. We'll get a clue that perhaps that was part of the issue in a few moments. In any event, he did not go. Verse 2 we read, It happened one evening that David arose from his bed and he walked on the roof of the king's house. Kind of a strange thing to do, maybe. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. So David sent and inquired about the woman and said, and they said, I'm sorry, someone said to him, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And verse 5, the woman Bathsheba conceived, so she sent and told David, I am with child. So David, if you think about what's happened here, has multiplied sins and made a series of decisions in very rapid order, all of which were pretty poor decisions. Let's rehearse them briefly. Number one, he abandoned his soldiers for apparently his own pleasure. Number two, he beheld the woman's beauty. 
He did not follow the example of uh, Joseph. Of course, we know the story of Potiphar's wife. Joseph, when he was confronted with a similar situation, fled, physically ran out of the room. But David did not do that, a decision he made. Number three, he pursued the matter further by asking, well, who is this woman? And once he was told who she was, he was told that she was married. Didn't stop him either. Another decision. He just kept going. He also didn't care, point number five, didn't care that she was married to Uriah, who he knew. Uriah was one of his mighty men, one of his loyal servants, who, by the way, was out in the fields fighting for Israel and serving his king. Didn't faze him. Number six, he took her, and of course, he lay with her. But he wasn't done there either. And again, I have some trepidation in even talking about this. King David was a man, of course, for much of his life after God's own heart. So I don't want to uh, just sit up here and cast tones. But he did these things, and they are recorded for us to learn from. But he wasn't done, as I said. In verses 7 through roughly 14 or 15, we see more unfolding. And this time it involves Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba. And I will summarize what happened at this point. David first brings Uriah into uh, the palace and wants to talk to him. He tries to manipulate him to go out to see his wife. But Uriah is such a loyal servant, he refuses to do that. And he leaves a memorable comment here in verse 11. Uriah says to David, The ark in Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, My lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. So shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So I think it's probably fair to say that what Uriah is saying here is probably what David should have decided some time before instead of staying at the palace. And I would have to think that God probably inspired these particular words. But David, of course, ignores that. And after the attempt to get him to go to Bathsheba, he being Uriah, he eventually just says, here, take this note back to Joab. And that note, of course, was his death warrant. So he sent the death warrant by Uriah's hand to take to Joab to execute, which he did, and Uriah dies. It's a really uh, difficult part of Scripture. It's hard to think about it. It's hard to consider it. And sometimes it's not very much fun to do it. So if I have taken you to a place you didn't want to go, my apologies. But I think it's important that we consider these things because these things can happen to God's people, as we just saw, and to a man like David even, a man after God's own heart. Eventually, however, God says enough is enough, and I think that's true for us. Sometimes we may get into these cycles of sin, and we may go let something persist, and we see in the next chapter that God sends Nathan the prophet to David. By the way, how would you like to have been Nathan? Here's your job. Go tell King David what he's done. (laughs) Seems like kind of a tough job, but Nathan did it. And as you know the story, and it's obviously a story we talk about the two, uh, or the rich and the poor man, the rich man who had loads and loads and loads, that's a modern phrase, of property and possessions, who takes the one ewe lamb from the poor man and uses it for himself. And that was God's way of making the point to David. David gets, of course, extremely angry at this injustice. 
showing again that he was blinded. Uh, Sin deceives us. The more sin we commit, the more deceived we become. And David was blind at this point. He did not realize what was going on. And so David pronounces a death penalty, in fact, on this man. Which, when you think about it, I don't know if it's ironic, but I think God, of course, inspired that as well. And we read about the punishment that comes David's way in verses 10 through um, 13. We know that the baby that is die, uh, born to Bathsheba and David will end up dying. We know that there will be horrific incidents within his household. His sons, well, one will kill the other. Uh, a daughter will become raped. I mean, again, this is, this is tough stuff, but this is what happened. And this is a result of multiplying sins and persisting in sins. So as we go through that difficult material, I do have to ask a question, and I point to myself, not just you. What about us? Are we persisting in sin? If you look at your life, are you stacking sin upon sin? If you think about my back bike example, it wasn't sin per se, but it turned out to be bad decision upon bad decision, which led to a bad, painful outcome. Are we doing that? Sometimes, as I said before, when we do this, it seems innocuous. It seems like, well, it's just a little thing. You know, I, I'm good with nine of the Ten Commandments, but you know, that one, mm, not, not so good with that. And we let it persist, and we let it build up. But it can be very dangerous, and we don't want to do that. So consider where you are. We need, as Mr. Copernot pointed out, we have to learn to trust God with our whole hearts. We need to learn to uh, obey him, believe his way is better. David did that for many years of his life, but at this point, he had lost his way, and he no longer believed that. But if you happen to be in that situation, I want you to take heart. It sounds like, oh, wow, this is a real downer, but take heart, because God will help you make it back if you are there, and if you're not there, yay, as I said before, do all you can to never go there. But let's look at how David made it back. And you will probably be ahead of me. The book of Psalms, chapter 51. Uh, we're back to the Psalms today. It's a very well-known book. It's the book or, or the um, chapter where David's repentance is recorded. It's about 17 or 18 verses of extremely rich, deep, and powerful uh, material to study. I don't have time today, of course, to go through all of it with you, but I'll try again. I guess I should have called this message summarizing because I keep summarizing, but uh, I'm going to summarize as best I can some of the elements of David's repentance. And I do that to help us maybe learn a bit more about repentance, but also encourage us and help us realize that there are elements. There is time involved. It It isn't just a snap of the fingers. But it does progress, and it does grow, and you can make it back to God. In fact, you might think of the prodigal son, where he finally came to his senses. You could say in in Psalms 51 that King David came to his senses. But let me summarize it here. I think there are eight elements. That's what I came up with anyway, and I'll share them now. David came to see that he was spiritually dirty, And he needed to be deeply cleaned. This was not just a situation where he had, oh, I messed up. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. That was kind of harsh or that was judgmental or whatever that was. This was a continual pattern and and repetition of sin. And he was 
very dirty, and he needed to be deeply cleaned. And if you look at the commentators uh, as they look at these words in verse, verses 2, and, and the, the subject of cleansing is repeated throughout the chapter, but there's, there's again, I'll, I'll try to repeat, in essence, what they said. But what they're talking about is a cleaning that took multiple times to clean. It wasn't just like, hey, I got a little uh, food there on my hand, I'll wash it under the sink and I'll be done. That's not what's going on here. It is, as I said, multiple washings. And if you think about the way washings used to take place, it, it involved treading something. You literally would wash something with your feet. If you think about that, you're pounding, you're putting intense pressure on an object. And as we read on in Psalm 51, we'll encounter a phrase where David says, the bones which you have crushed if you look at the Hebrew there, the word crush means to collapse. David, as he went through this process, as he came to full repentance, I mean, he literally felt crushed. That was the impact of what he experienced. And it was that way of cleaning. It was to think about it. It's a treading, and that's what the commentators say. When David's talking about washed, this isn't a quick rinse. This is repetitive, deeply uh, intense, and thorough cleaning that was required. So I, I wanted, there are eight, I mentioned two right there, the need to be cleansed deeply, uh, the fact that you will almost have to collapse. In fact, at the end of Psalms 51, there's a familiar verse where God, he says, God does not seek sacrifice, but he seeks a contrite and broken spirit. The word contrite, did I just say this? Maybe I'm phasing out. The word contrite, <laughs> forgive me if I said this already, it means to be to collapse. It's the same thing. So he uses this word in multiple occasions to ex express how deep this experience was and what he went through. So he was spiritually dirty. He also pointed out, I am guilty before God. I've struggled with this one before because I've read this verse and thought, it says, against you only have I sinned. What, what does that mean? Well, I think the meaning is God is the lawgiver. God is the judge of all. He's the one who came up with these laws. And though we may have offended a fellow a member or a, a family member, uh, we're sinning when we sin, we are guilty before God. And he came to understand that. And he also, a third point, he had to have his sins blotted out. If he didn't get them blotted out, he was done. He was done. He also realized it was his inner man that needed to change. And I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you. The idea here is to share it briefly, and if you want to read it on your own, please do so. And here is kind of a scary one. He also came to realize, because he asked, he said, God, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. He realized he was on the precipice of potentially losing the Holy Spirit and being able, as the verse continues, and says, do not take me away from your presence. I mean, this was serious business that he had allowed himself to get caught up into. And so I share that because this is a, the, the point of awareness that he was brought to. He also realized something else. He had no joy. His joy was taken from him. If we don't have joy, we might ask ourselves, why is that? Now, maybe we've gone through trials, uh, and maybe that, that does sometimes take its toll on us. But he makes the point that we need to have joy. We should have joy because God is our Father and Christ is our elder brother. And if we don't have that, then we are, we're a little bit lost and we need to get that joy back. And finally, after having gone through all this, he says, I want to help others. Please help me so I can tell them you know, what not to do. He learned a painful, painful lesson, it would appear. So that is my 
attempt to summarize lessons from the chapters, Psalm 51, in repentance. And I I do want to say this. Again, this is heavy stuff. um, But the message is this. Take heart. Take heart. If you happen to be in that situation, you can, with God's help, find your way out. And if you haven't gone there, again, that's fantastic. Stay on that, that narrow path. Keep going, because you don't want to go through anything remotely like this. Okay? And one final point about this. When it comes to the matter of repentance, I have always been taught in the church, and I think this is our official position. Uh, someone can correct me later if I'm wrong, but that repentance is a gift of God. If you would turn to the book of uh, Acts, chapter 11, verse 18. Obviously, the New Testament church being spoke of here, Acts 11, verse 18, when they had heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, then has God also to the Gentiles granted or given repentance unto life. We need to ask, and this can be a more run-of-the-mill sins as well, of course, if there is a run-of-the-mill sin, uh, God needs to grant us that repentance. So please ask God for repentance. So take heart. God wants us to be successful. He will help you make it back if you get into that state. But again, try your best not to get there. So as we begin to wrap up today, I thought that I would uh, finish up with a journey, which I initially called the journey onward. I guess that applies. But I wanted to kind of plant it, so to speak, in the time that we're living in. So let me try to do that. And let me go back to an earlier metaphor as well. When your alarm went off this morning or when you woke up, you woke up to a rather stressful time. Now, you might have thought, oh, great, it's the Sabbath. I don't have to go to work today. Yay. But after that happened, you may have started thinking about some of the things that are taking place in this world right now. Our dear friend, ha-ha, COVID-19, the thing that wouldn't leave is still here, still causing suffering, pain, distress, and annoyance, if nothing else. Still there. Our country, as was mentioned, I think, in the prayer, and also perhaps Mr. Coburnot, is in turmoil over how to deal with our past and what the future of our country will look like. People around the world are fixated on climate change, thinking that the world is facing imminent doom if we don't stop using fossil fuels. There's a lot of turmoil. There's a lot of upheaval. Hurricane Ida just left a, a, a... path of destruction across much of the United States. But let me ask you this. When you woke up this morning, did you also think, as I said earlier, about God being able to give you the victory? I talked about the alarm being a little miniature signature or a reminder of the trumpet sounding. God wants to give us and can give us and will give us the victory. So let me, as I wrap up here, look very quickly at three stories of victory. Uh, Heroes from the book of Hebrews And we're going to start with Noah. Now, I tried to find a few people who actually seem to have something in common with with us, which sometimes when we read the Bible, we think those guys, those folks, those ladies lived thousands of years ago. The culture was so different. But there are some things that they, of course, share with us. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Let's read very briefly about Noah. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen. Well, that applies to every one of us here. We have been divinely warned of things not yet seen. So we can learn, and we have this in common. We can learn from Noah's example, of course. He was moved with godly fear, and he went about preparing an ark for the saving 
of his household. We all need to save or prepare our own uh, figurative ark for the saving of our household. How are we doing? Are we building that ark right now? Let's look then in verse 8, this time, Abraham, Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. I don't know about you, but sometimes as I look at what's happening in this country and wondering about, of course, prophecies, I'm kind of thinking, where is this going? How is this going to end up? What will my life look like in three, five, 10, 20 years, and also for the lives of my sons and your sons and your daughters? Well, he went anyway. He went out in faith. We don't exactly know how it's going to play out. We generally know. And he did that because he waited, in verse 10, for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And the final example, in verse 20, that doesn't look right. Let me get my glasses. Hmm. Well, it says verse 27, so I'm going to go with my notes. This is about Moses. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, I want to use this verse with some um, caution. The lights are flashing. It must be time to stop. Not fearing the wrath of the king. So we need to be wise in this. You know, we may face issues where we are troubled by what someone in an official stance says about what we should do or shouldn't do. Now, we need to be careful because we have to make sure that if we defy or not, not fear the wrath of this king, let's say, that this is actually God's will that we are following. Obviously, we can think of uh, Daniel and how he was in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their example when they were commanded to worship Nebuchadnezzar. We have to be careful in this. We are not to be flippant. We are not to be disrespectful of uh, public officials. So please bear that in mind. But there may be a time where you have to deal with this particular issue. And he, of course, did that, and he was, of course, successful. So finally, we've talked about journeys. We've talked about travel tips. We've talked about decisions. But what is this all about? Well, when you go on a journey, it's because you're headed for a destination. So let's close today with just a reminder of the glorious destination that God, our Father, and Jesus Christ has in mind for all of us. So if you would, turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, chapter 21, and we'll read in verse 21. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God, what a beautiful statement here, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, yea, There'll be no more sorrow, yay. There'll be no more crying, and there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away.